We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. And away we go, episode 54 of the Al Galdi podcast. It is Monday, May 3rd, 2021. Hope that you had a nice weekend. Hope that you did not get hurt while, say, playing a video game. Did you hear about Oakland A's lefty starter, Jesus Lazardo, the former Nationals prospect? He's out indefinitely due to breaking the pinky on his pitching hand when he thumped the table while playing a video game before his start on Saturday when he allowed six runs, three earned in three innings in the Orioles' 8-4 win at the A's. Beware of playing video games. They'll hurt you. But hello and welcome to a post-NFL Draft Weekend installment of the Al Galdi Podcast. I would say that it's been a while since we've spoken, but it hasn't been a while. We spoke not once but twice over the weekend. The first ever bonus installments of the podcast. Thanks to everyone who downloaded those. This podcast vaulting to number 37 in the country as I tape this in the U.S. football category on Apple Podcasts. If you haven't already, I would encourage you to check out the special weekend episodes. Episode 52 on what Washington did in rounds two and three. That show came out on Saturday. Episode 53 on what Washington did in rounds four through seven. That show came out on Sunday. Did a lot on each guy who Washington took. Went through the best of what Ron Rivera and Martin Mayhew said at their joint Zoom press conference 
after each draft day. There was too much not to do bonus episodes. This Monday show would have been like three hours long had I waited until this show to do all of the draft recap talk for the Washington football team because I have even more Washington draft talk for you on this installment of the podcast. We on Sunday had a report on Dan Snyder's involvement in Washington's 2021 draft. I'm going to talk about that momentarily. Also, special guest Thor Nystrom, the lead NFL draft and college football analyst for NBC Sports Edge. Thor Nystrom is one of the best national NFL draft analysts. He's joined me the previous two years to discuss Washington's draft classes, and he's back with me again this year. You will hear his thoughts on all 10 of Washington's picks. He's actually not a big fan of Washington's draft class overall, so prepare yourselves for that. Although Thor does like some of the picks quite a bit, so you'll get a very good, objective, sober analysis of Washington's draft class from Thor who, by the way, has one of the great names in sports media. Thor Nystrom. Sounds like a guy from medieval times. The mighty Thor. Uh, My conversation with him in just a bit. Also, I'll be talking Capitals, Wizards, Nationals, and Orioles. Mixed weekends for the Caps and Wiz in terms of results. Although with the Caps, they've already clinched a playoff spot. Very good weekends, though, for the Nats and O's. You can tweet me at Al Galdi. You can email me, the Al Galdi Podcast at yahoo.com, including, by the way, if you are interested in advertising on the podcast. I hear from people sometimes asking about that. Uh, Yes, join the movement, especially if you have a local business and are interested in reaching thousands of people per day in Maryland, Virginia, and Washington, D.C., especially as the economy is getting back to where it was. This podcast, out by 5 a.m. every weekday, Monday through Friday. This is not some once a week, twice a week, even thrice a week operation. Every weekday, Monday through Friday, we're with you, out by 5 a.m. No other show like it. You can email me. Uh, let the power of the pod work for you. The Al Galdi podcast at yahoo.com. All right, here are some of the grades for Washington's 2021 draft. I mentioned that the mighty Thor doesn't love Washington's draft class. He's the outlier. Take a listen to these grades. Pro Football Focus, A-, minus. ESPN's Mel Kuyper Jr., B, Danny Kelly of The Ringer, B+, Sports Illustrated, B+, Pro Football Network, B, Sporting News, B. Those are pretty good grades, right? I mean, this to me marks a fourth consecutive year in which the initial grades of a Washington draft coming out of the draft are good. Now, How much does that mean? Not much, okay? But it's worth noting. Remember, by the way, the initial reaction to Washington's 2019 draft, the Dwayne Haskins draft. Washington received praise for that draft, like no praise the team really has ever gotten for anything in an offseason under Dan Snyder, which, of course, is ironic, given that we came to learn that the Danny ordered the pick of Wayne Wayne, what ended up being a total flop of a first-round pick. But I'll never forget that post-draft reaction nationally. One A after another. The grades for Washington's 2019 draft in the immediate aftermath of that draft were sky high. So much so that Bruce Allen, remember, came out from his bunker and was all over the place. The guy who never did interviews all of a sudden did interviews everywhere. He was taking bows left and right. You couldn't shut him up at that point. It means you're close. Yes, Brucey, I know. Didn't turn out that way. Uh, you weren't close. The team went three and 13 that season and you got fired. So draft grades immediately after drafts only mean so much. Not nearly as much as who you choose as your real estate agent. You have options, many options when it comes to selling your home. Let me tell you why I strongly recommend you call John Grandland with Real Broker, aka John G. 
John G's numbers don't lie. John G's homes this year are selling for more than 40 days faster than average, for more money than average. And best of all, they're selling for 99.89% of asking price. When John G puts a plan together, you can trust it and you can trust that you're going to get paid. Remember what Randy Moss said years ago? Straight cash, homie. Yes, straight cash, homie. That's what John Grandlin puts in your pocket. Here's what Diane, who had John sell a single family home in Vienna, had to say. Quote, I interviewed three realtors. John came in with an excellent marketing and pricing plan. He held several open houses, advised me on pricing, and got me a great price in no time at all. I highly recommend John to anyone in Vienna slash Northern Virginia. End quote. John also has flexible commission packages, including selling your home for free. Yes, we've been talking about that. Some conditions apply. To learn more, to get the value of your home, visit this website, johngsellsforfree.com. That's johngsellsforfree.com. Or better yet, give John a call now. Tell him that Al Galdi sent you. And understand, you calling John Grandlin helps this podcast greatly. The phone number is 703 537 6747. That's 703-537-6747. John Granlin's a great guy, big Washington football and Nats fan, but most importantly, he's an outstanding real estate agent. John Grandland. Tell him Al Galdi sent you. Great cash, homie. Before we get to our special guest, Thor Nystrom, the lead NFL draft and college football analyst for NBC Sports Edge with his deep dive into the Washington football team's 2021 draft class, I did want to address something that was reported on Sunday. It is something that has to do with the Donnie. First off, happy Thanksgiving, everybody. Yes, Danny. Same to you. So Washington football team insider Ben Standig of The Athletic DC in a piece that was published on Sunday reported that Ron Rivera during the 2021 NFL draft kept Dan Snyder abreast of Washington's plans and trade talks, but also that there had been no signs of interference from Dan during Washington's draft process. And I had a few thoughts on all of this. Number one, it is hysterical to me that this is news. But at the same time, this is totally newsworthy. Like, I don't blame Ben one bit for writing about this because this is news. The history of the Washington football team being owned by the Donnie is such that him not interfering is news. The way that things worked during the 2021 NFL draft for Washington that the guy who was supposed to be running things, Ron Rivera, was allowed to run things, that Ron keeping the owner updated, but also the owner not interfering is what happened. That's normal. That's like the way a functioning, healthy football team goes about its business. Normal is news for the Washington football team. When something happens that is normal, that is done for the most part across the NFL, that's a big deal. Like, think about how absurd that is. But that's 100% the case. The fact that things were normal is notable. Now, it is way too early to declare things having fully changed when it comes to Dan. We many times over the years have thought that things were different only to find out that they weren't different or at least weren't different enough. So I am not going to do a whole spiel here of, hey, everything's different now and we've made it out of the darkness and the way things are operating these days so much different than the way things operated in yesteryear. I hope all of that's true. We cannot say that that's true. Not yet. It's too early. You cannot declare victory 
at this point. You can declare victory in another two to three years, okay? If things continue along this path and there's nothing in the way of the Danny interfering and there's everything in the way of Don Ron getting to run football operations as he sees fit. And by the way, that him running football operations as he sees fit leads to winning, okay? Because just because your process is sound doesn't mean that your results are good. Like you can do things the right way and still get the wrong results. So we are a long ways away from saying, hey, we've made it, we've done it, we're where we need to be. But what Ben had on Sunday, obviously, is what you would like to be hearing. What's interesting, too, with Dan, when it comes to the meddling stuff, is that the meddling over the years has evolved. Dan went from being super involved in his initial decade of ownership, 1999 through 2009, to being less involved beginning in 2010. That is true. Dan's involvement lessened when Mike Shanahan and Bruce Allen got hired because Brucey really took over the role of Danny. But the lesser involvement from Danny included instances of major and catastrophic involvement. So it became less an issue of quantity and more an issue of quality. You know, think Dan growing way too close to RG3 in 2012. Think Dan, of course, dictating the drafting of Dwayne Haskins with the number 15 overall pick in the 2019 draft. And that brings me to this. Dan's meddling has had consequences beyond the meddling. And the ordering of the drafting of old Wayne Wayne is a perfect example of this. It's not just the meddling in and of itself. It's the domino effect of the meddling. First of all, so with the Haskins thing, Washington's football people, as everyone knows by now, especially Jay Gruden, never wanted Dwayne in the first round. And what Danny ordering the drafting of Dwayne led to was Jay leaking to anyone who would listen that Dan was taking over Washington's draft heading into the 2019 draft. All that stuff that was out there going into that 2019 draft of Dan taking over Washington's draft room, that was being leaked by Jay. And among Jay's operatives was ESPN NFL reporter Diana Rossini, who on December 28, 2020 tweeted, quote, I will never forget the week leading up to the draft in 2019. A member of the Washington coaching staff, hmm, I wonder who that was, told me he was going to actually throw up in the war room because ownership wasn't listening. Coaches didn't believe Haskins was the right person to be the future of the franchise, end quote. Now, think about that for a moment, because you have an impact that's multi-pronged. First of all, you have morale and football operations plummeting with a coaching staff that doesn't want this guy to begin with, and also with a guy like, say, Kyle Smith, who spends months putting together a draft board, basically being told, go sit in the corner, because I'm going to tell you who we're going to end up drafting. But you also have the fact that a person on your coaching staff, again, I wonder who, is leaking something to a national reporter like Diana Rossini. Like, what does that look like to the rest of the league, okay? What kind of a toxic picture of your organization is painted when someone is doing something like that? I mean, again, the language, going to actually throw up in the war room because ownership isn't listening. Like, how does that look? What does that convey about your organization to the rest of the league? And then, of course, there's the thing of Danny was wrong with the pick. Like, it would have been one thing if Danny ordered the drafting of Wayne Wayne, and Wayne Wayne ended up being great. Danny really could not have been more wrong about Dwayne Haskins. The guy got cut before the end of his second season. That almost never happens with first-round quarterbacks. And there's also this in terms of Dan's meddling having had consequences beyond the meddling. Washington traded its 2019 and 2020 second-round picks to the Indianapolis Colts to get back into the first round of that 2019 draft. 
to take Montez Sweat at 26. This was done to placate Washington's football people. Imagine if Washington had just taken Sweat at number 15 or even traded down to take Sweat later in the first round. The team could have had Sweat, still had its 2019 and 2020 second round picks, and never have wasted time on the Dwayne fiasco. Again, Dan's meddling has had many consequences beyond just the meddling in and of itself. So yes, good news from Ben Standing in that report on Sunday. Like I said, I am not holding a parade. We have a long ways to go before victory truly can be declared. To say nothing of, again, what Ben depicted in that report on Sunday is normal, okay? Things are supposed to be normal. Do you remember the Chris Rock bit from many years ago? What do you want, a cookie? I ain't never been to jail. What do you want, a cookie? Yeah, exactly, okay? You don't get a cookie for being normal. You're supposed to do that. I ain't never been to jail. What you want, a cookie? Exactly, Chris. Thank you. Now to our special guest. All right, so the Washington football team's 2021 draft is complete and very pleased to welcome to the Al Galdi podcast right now one of the best NFL draft analysts there is, one of the most passionate NFL draft analysts there is, Thor Nystrom, the lead NFL draft and college football analyst for NBC Sports Edge. His NFL draft position rankings are incredible, include comps for every player in the draft. Just amazing. Thor, it's great to talk to you again, man. How are you? Al, it's great to talk to you too. I'm doing great, man. How do you come up with those comps? It is amazing to me how you're able to do that. And these aren't just like obvious comps. You drill deep into NFL history to come up with comps for guys. Yeah, yeah, some of them. Yeah, like uh, one funny story from this class. There's a kid named Kelvin Ashley who was a a five-star recruit boss who went to Auburn. Then he ended up at Florida A&M. I spent about an hour and a half coming up with that one because I called a buddy who knew college football really well. He used to work in an FCS program as a GA, and we were trying to go through the last the last 10, 15 years of five-star recruit bus to find the kid that closest resembled Ashley. Cause I also wanted to hint at the fact that he had busted as a recruit. It's, it's a whole, it's a whole long process, but uh, it, I'm a sickle for that kind of stuff. So it's a pleasure to do it. I love it. I love it, man. Well, your grades are out for the NFL draft and the grade for Washington was not so kind to D uh, before we get to some of the specifics, just kind of generally speaking, why did you not like Washington's draft? Yeah, so first I'll say, um, and I always have to explain this, you know, as far as my grades go, but I, I grade on a curve. So like when you look at, you know, my grades against the, the, the rest of the media, I'm, I always have like the lowest ones or whatever. Um, and so th- that's a part of it with, with, you know, with the D thing, you know, when you're th- comparing it to other analysts, you're going to be like, oh, that's, he's giving us like the worst grade. So I, I probably had Washington like his seventh from the bottom or, or something like a sixth from the bottom. And as far as their class goes, uh, g- getting Davidson round one, it, you know, it's not something that I was going to argue big time with. Um, I had his, his, you know, him a little bit lower. Um, so I dinged him a little bit for that. And then I, I love the Cosme pick, um, in round two. I mean, that, that was just good value shopping. Um, the St. Juice pick, I wasn't the biggest fan of that either. And so that's, that's where they got dinged on the value with, with that one as well. Um, I, I'm, I'm going to be interested to see in the NFL if St. Juice can handle corner. I, I have my concerns about that, so, so that's why you know I, I rated him a little bit lower. I wasn't the biggest fan of Diami Brown either, but it turns out the NFL wasn't either. So, so it was actually okay value where they got him. But then when you, you flip it to day three, I, I just didn't like the prospects that they ended up uh, zeroing in on. Okay, we'll, we'll get to some of those as this goes on. Washington did not take a quarterback, uh, perhaps could have traded up for Justin Fields or Mac Jones, didn't do that. Definitely could have taken Kyle Trask, Kellen Mond, or Davis Mills, didn't do that. 
did Washington make a mistake in your opinion, or do you get the team not going quarterback at any point? That's tough because I, you know, I value, uh, draft equity in general quite a bit, but especially when you're going to give up next year's and you're not assured of being a contender. That, that is all. I mean, what Chicago, you're basically going to have to do what Chicago did to get up and get fields. I, I wouldn't argue at all with the idea of not trying to hop uh, the Patriots for Mac Jones. You, just because I think you can get better in, in, in next year's class. Um, but the, the field thing that that's interesting, you know, and it becomes like, you know, would you, would you have given up, say, you know, Davis, the opportunity to take John Bates and your first round pick next year to get fields. If it's me. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. I am. You know yeah. what I mean? Yeah. Well, I know you comp fields to Deshaun Watson. So you're a believer that fields will be legit. I definitely am. Yeah. I, I think he was, um, you know, overly criticized and overly nitpicked during the process. And in, in a lot of ways, you know, with, with narratives that were easily proven false. And so, yeah, I, you know, it, it, his drop also reminded me very much of, of Deshaun Watson's in, in his own year. And, you know, I mean, kudos to the Bears for going up and getting him. If you look at the, the consensus rankings that came out the, this morning, that um, there's a guy in Germany named Rene Brugler that puts together overnight, like yeah. the, the great whatever. Yeah. Chicago is number one in the NFL this morning. And that move, I think Washington probably would have been number one in the NFL if they had made that move. All right, so the Washington football team's first-round pick, the Kentucky linebacker, Jamin Davis, you had him as the fourth-best linebacker in the draft. What's so interesting with this is that a guy who a lot of people thought Washington might go with, the Notre Dame linebacker, Jeremiah Owusu-Koromoa, obviously was there at 19, ended up being there for Washington at 51. Did Washington make a mistake in not taking JOK at any point? I, yes. Yeah. For me, absolutely. I mean, you know, like, would you rather have Davis and, and Cosme, for instance, or Darisa and Awusu Koromoa? I, I don't, I don't know anyone that would choose the, the first group to the second. Now th- that's, you know, some hindsight, obviously, because they didn't know that Awusu Koromoa would be available in the second round. But yeah, I mean, that's a part of the reason why you don't reach for the off-ball linebackers. It's a, it's a devalued position as is. And sometimes you get those guys in this case, Alusa Cormo, who, you know, I wrote that he was a bird whose, whose feathers were too bright for the NFL to understand as a, as a top 20 pick. And I, I think that's what it was. It, they certainly would have stolen him if, you know, if they'd gone offense flying in the first round and been looking for that off ball guy in the second. How do you see Jamin Davis doing in the NFL? Obviously, incredible athletic gifts, leadership, you know, great background, et cetera. Ron Rivera is a huge fan. Do you think Jamin Davis will be a great linebacker? Yeah, and, and and this is why it's sort of hard for me to criticize that pick because I like Davis a lot. You know, like watching him this year and, and how much he ascended. Um, you you see now, you know, with the developmental leaps in conjunction with the athleticism, and you know, you you see this progression that you would you have to believe is going to keep going for it. I mean, the 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 you know the arc of his progression as far as developmentally goes. Yes, it, it absolutely pretends to that. I absolutely think he's going to be, you know, a, a really good linebacker. He reminded me of uh, Willie Gay from the last class, but without the off-field stuff as a guy that we hadn't seen as much coming out of the SEC. But, you know, when we did, in in, in the snaps that we did, um, fabulous athlete, a guy who flashed in coverage. And that's the big thing with Davis. I expect him to be able to nullify uh, you know, tight ends, running backs, um, who knows, maybe even uh, tangle with some big slots there um, as far as coverage goes. And the sideline to sideline stuff, of course, the, the kid attacks, he plays hard. And again, just because of the, the progression we've seen developmentally, you absolutely project that to go, to go going forward. 
talking with Thor Nystrom, lead NFL draft and college football analyst for NBC Sports Edge. So I know you like Samuel Cosme. He's an athletic freak, one of many athletic freaks who Washington targeted in the draft. I know there are some questions about Cosme, though, in terms of like, you know, effort, toughness, those sorts of things. Where are you on Cosme when it comes to that? I, I think he got unnecessarily nitpicked through, throughout the pro. You know, I, I, sort of an, another kid like that. He pl- he plays hard, um, and he was a kid that I mean, like you talk about a, a kid that works too. He was supposed to go to Houston with Tom Herman, and then Herman ends up getting the Texas job and takes Cosme with him. Cosme wouldn't have gotten into Texas otherwise, you know, because he was just like a, a, a forgotten three star recruit in the state of Texas. That kid worked his butt off, and he started. You know, I mean, he, he was the cog for that team. You know, on, on, on offense, just lock down, you know, the left side of that offensive line for Ellinger and, and stuff like that. You mentioned the athleticism, also super duper, real, <clears throat> excuse me, reliable mm-hmm. in, in the Big 12, both, you know, in terms of the, the run and the, and, and the pass. The, the one thing that, that people nitpick him for, and this is the reason why, you know, I, I rated him a little bit lower, but certainly above the, the slot where Washington took him is there's some hip, hip stiffness there. And so he plays a little bit high and I don't think that he can get lower. You know, because of that hip stiffness. And so that manifests sometimes in, you know, again, coming in too high, you know, in, in the run game, which sometimes allows people to get off the blocks, et cetera. But even with that, he's still going to start in the NFL for a decade. So, you know, it, the, the playing high thing, it, it's, it's, again, it's something that caps the ceiling, but, but it's not, you know, disqualifying by any means whatsoever. Rod Rivera said that Cosme is going to get a shot at left tackle. You can see Cosme as an LT1 for years to come. I can, yeah. Okay. Yeah, you know, I, I would try him there too. I, I, I love that idea. You just have to see, again, if, if that limitation with getting low and, and some of the, you know, the lateral uh, quickness and, and stuff like that, if that's going to be able to handle Chase Young is, is, is would, would be the obvious example there. If, if you know, unless it's disqualifying against the freak athletes like that, he's absolutely going to be able to handle it. If not, he's going to be a really good right tackle. You mentioned the North Carolina receiver, Deyami Brown. He was productive for the Tar Heels the last two seasons, has speed. What didn't you like about him, and why was he available to where Washington could get him with the team's second, third-round pick, number 82 overall? Yeah, it, you know, again, it's, it's, it's interesting where he, where Brown ended up going, because I was fighting people on Brown throughout the process, because before he was looked at as, like, a high second-round pick who might crack the first round and stuff like that. My whole thing with him was, at UNC, he was basically this one-trick pony that they sent deep all the time. And last season, you know, was his sort of jump-up season. He played really well in 2019 as well. But last season, where statistically, you know, the, the real jump came. And for me, he's sort of a one-trick pony at this point. Like, they didn't have him running routes. It, the Phil Longo offense, it's, it's this hybrid of, of, of the air raid, you know, with, with, with the run, a downhill running game added to it. And so basically, you know, it's this one read, um, sort of system with the safeties. And when they got Brown into one-on-one scenarios, they'd send him deep all the time. And when he's one-on-one, we're throwing it deep in, in, in you know, in, in, so anyway, when, when the ball would get there, I, I saw better ball tracking last season for, from Diamond. You saw a couple of flash plays, you know, catching the ball over his shoulder and stuff like that. But the drop issue remains for him. And in fact, it's, uh, PFF only, um, charted him, I think, with three drops this past season. I saw more than double that just watching his film. Um, and I, I put a video out on Twitter showing my work on, on, on that. So for me, as far as a guy that's a one trick pony, that at this time, 
you don't know if he's comfortable, you know, running routes in the intermediate area, catching the ball with bodies around him because we haven't seen that. And and for his one special sauce, if that's going to be winning downfield, there's too many drops there to to project him consistently succeeding there in the NFL. It's such to be worth a second round slot, in my opinion. What's so interesting about that is that PFF had the stat that Diami never dropped a contested target in his collegiate career, which consisted yeah, they're of. Wrong. They're wrong. They're wrong. Okay. Okay. They're wrong. Yeah. Yeah. Categorically. They're wrong. I, I don't know who did Diami Brown's charting it. And I usually love PFF. It, whoever did his charting, uh, did a poor job. He, he, in, in contested situations, his game goes down, d- downfield. You see more drops. Um, and, and even just in general, the, the ball skills down there are not, uh, sort of what it was displayed to the general public, I think, during his process. But that being said, again, you know, the Redskins got him at 82. I, I ended up ranking him 96. 82 is a far more acceptable value range than when we were talking about him as a high second round pick. So I, I don't want to nitpick Washington too much for, you know, for getting him at 82 there. Speaking of value, uh, I could not stand Washington trading for a six round pick and then using that six round pick on a long snapper, Cameron Cheeseman <laughs> of Michigan. I, I mean, to me, you should never draft a long snapper. Where are you on that? Oh, totally. I, I sent out a tweet right after this. It basically, you know, if, if you want to burn your, if you don't want to use your six round pick, you know, or whatever, trade it for a fifth rounder next year or don't trade into the round to take a long snapper. That's a position that you give the veteran minimum to, you know, like there's still good prospects that are, are available in the sixth round for me, you know, for me, I, I, I'm not torching the draft equity in it in that way. Yeah. A hundred percent. Washington went with the tight end John Bates of Boise State in the fourth round. Did not take Brevin Jordan of Miami. Was that a mistake? No. Um, I, for me, I, you know, I, I'm not the biggest Brevin Jordan guy. Um, you know, so, so I, I had him lower on down, sort of around probably, I, I think, you know, where, where, where Bates was. But if for, for Washington fans, I wouldn't get too worked up about that. Brevin Jordan's a guy that, um, you know, despite having, you know, his accolades as, as a tight end recruit and being athletic and everything, he doesn't catch the ball downfield and with people around him. You notice that his catch rate plummets, you know, beyond 10 yards, uh, beyond the line of scrimmage and with bodies around him that the contested catch thing. So he reminded me almost of a, a tight end version of like a, a Kadarius Tony mm-hmm. as, as a manufactured touch guy that you would have to get. The ball short and then he ran. I mean, that, that, that's what they do with him at Miami. The, the good thing about, uh, Bates is at least, um, he projects to, to be able to do more stuff as far as like the inline stuff, you know, and, 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 and stuff like that. He's a reliable kid. I ended up siding with a couple other, um, you know, tight, you know, like, um, uh, Davidson who ended up going to, uh, the, the Vikings and uh, there was a few other inline, you know, type, type guys that I liked a little bit more than him, but he was a real, Bates was a super reliable guy at, at Boise State. I mean, he was on the field consistently over the last several years. Uh, you see the run blocking. You also see some chops as far as the receiver goes. I'm, I'm not necessarily surprised that a team zeroed in on him. In, 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 you know, in the top 125 or whatever it ended up being. Washington, with three seventh-round picks, spent the first two on edge rushers, Baylor's William Bradley King, Penn State Shaka Tony. You did have both of them as top 25 edge rushers in this draft. Did you like Washington going with those guys? I did. Yeah, that, that is how you use your, your seventh-round picks, is, you know, you either shoot the moon on a super athletic kid that just hasn't been taught the, the right way yet, or you just get strong players that shouldn't be there that, for whatever reason, just sort of filter through. 
I've heard about William Bradley King for years now. A couple of years ago, an NFL agent messaged me about him when he was on Arkansas State. That you know, because then he ended up transferring to Baylor, and uh, he was telling me that. Um, there was all these other kids on Arkansas State's defense that people were talking about, and he was like, I, I talked to coaches there. This kid's the freak. Um, and then he, he ends up going to Baylor. He, he had a, a tough time, you know, as far as, like, you know, the, the, the wonkiness of the COVID offseason. And then, you know, he tried to transfer up to show his skills on, you know, at, uh, on sort of the higher level. But then he ends up going to Baylor when, you know, they sort of regressed after that one year with, with Rua. For me, he filtered down the cracks that he shouldn't have been there. Um, especially when he tested pretty well, you know, he, he tested over the 90th percentile and Raz Shaka Tony's another guy, you know, where it's, it's, you grab him for the athletic traits there and you, you just see what you can do. Um, that he, you know, he wasn't, I mean, it's, it's sort of like a thing like his teammate, but just a far less version of it with, you know, with, with Owick, you, you see the athleticism there. Obviously his frame, you know, is, is, is going to limit his utility. So they're going to have to find, you know, what they can do with him. But you bet on the athletic traits there in, in round seven. You discount the fact that Chaka Tony had a bad senior ball. I, I think that's another reason that he wasn't more of like a fifth round pick. You pick the kid up on a discount. You just see what you've got. And then as far as Dax Milne, um, hit the one downfield, you know, last year, you know, I mean, turn on the Zach Wilson tape. It's always Zach, you know, uh, Milne, you know, on, on the receiving and downfield of those, those deep balls. As far as a kid that has shown that he can win downfield, he again another guy that's absolutely worth a dart throw. He didn't test very well, but we didn't expect him to. But but you know it, it wouldn't surprise me at all if you know if, if he latched on and and hung around for a while. You mentioned Raz, the Kentley Platy metric relative athletic score. Washington certainly put an emphasis on drafting guys who excelled when it came to speed and athleticism. What do you think about that as a draft strategy? I totally agree with you. Yeah. I mean, you start to get a beat on, on teams, general strategies, you know, like, you know, looking into the data and stuff like that. And it really does seem like Washington has prioritized adding athleticism. Um, one really good example of this, I, I thought Derek Forrest, you know, in, in, in the fifth round, that that's a profile where it's super intriguing because of the athleticism. And again, then, you know, the, the guys later on, they're just taking flyers on the, on, on the, the high, highly athletic guys. And then of course, up top, um, you know, Davis, that's the reason you take him there is because he's an absolute freak athlete. He's going to be able to do stuff that other linebackers can't do. So, yeah, for, for me, Al, I, I totally agree with you. That that was a theme, absolutely. Excellent. He is one of the best. Thor Nystrom, lead NFL draft college football analyst for NBC Sports Edge, which is a terrific site. Thor, love talking ball with you, man. All the best to you. Al, thanks so much, man. So the biggest five-game stretch of the Capitals' regular season ended over the weekend and ended with a thud, a 3 nothing loss to the Pittsburgh Penguins at Capital One Arena on Saturday night. This off a 5-4 overtime loss to the Penguins at Capital One Arena on Thursday night when both the Caps and Pens clinched playoff spots. So at this point for the Caps, it's really about seeding and health more than anything else. I'm not sure how much winning the East Division truly matters. I talked about this in my conversation with a longtime television voice of the Capitals, Joe Beninati of NBC Sports Washington. If you missed that chat, that was in episode 45 of the podcast. But Joe was in agreement with me. It probably doesn't matter that much that the Caps win the East Division, but you do want to be playing well and you do want to be healthy. But the Caps end up going 3-1-1 and in the big five-game stretch against the New York Islanders and Pittsburgh Penguins that we've been talking about. 3-0-0 against the Islanders, 0-1-1 
against the Penguins. And now just five games and nine days are left in the Caps regular season. Yes, the Stanley Cup playoffs are quickly approaching. Caps are in second place in the East Division at 69 points, two points behind the Penguins, two points ahead of the Islanders, who, by the way, also now have clinched a playoff spot. Caps are three points ahead of the Boston Bruins. So just five points separate the top four teams in the East, and all four teams play on Monday night. All four teams on the road. Caps are at the New York Rangers at seven. As for the game on Saturday night, the three nothing loss to Pittsburgh at Capital One Arena. Caps fell to 32-14 and five, wrapped up a 2-2 and four regular season against the Penguins. And the Caps remain without two key players. Alex Ovechkin still is not back. Uh, Caps have now been without Ovi for each of the last four games due to a lower body injury that was suffered in the one nothing shootout win at the Islanders on April 22nd. Caps also were without defenseman John Carlson for a second consecutive game due to a lower body injury. So clearly, you got to get these two guys right. Like, that right now matters more than winning the East Division, especially, of course, Ovechkin. Now, it's never been depicted as Ovi's dealing with something super serious, but you know how it works in the NHL with injuries. You're told next to nothing. You're not even told what the injuries are. You're just told upper body or lower body. Like, that's it. I mean, the the, the uh, extent to which NHL injuries are cloaked in secrecy really is something else. We talk about that with, like, the NFL. The NHL is far worse. I mean, you are told nothing about injuries unless the information is reported or is volunteered to you by, say, a head coach. But otherwise, uh, you know next to nothing about these things. Like, imagine in the NFL if Chase Young was injured and we were just told lower body. Like, nobody would accept that. You'd be like, well, what is it? What's he dealing with? How did it happen? When is he going to be back? What is the treatment like? All that kind of a thing. Here you have Alex Ovechkin, the greatest player in the history of the Capitals, and it's like, eh, lower body. Okay, he's missed four straight games. Huh, okay, playoffs are coming up. Huh, okay, it's like, we just accept that uh, as hockey fans as Capitals fans. Anyway, with the game on Saturday night, Caps had a bad first period. Uh, during the first period, per natural stat trick, had just one five-on-five high-danger shot attempt to the Penguins' five. But the Caps only trailed one nothing at the end of the first period. And in the second period, per natural stat trick, had eight five-on-five high-danger shot attempts to the Penguins' three. So this was another case of the Caps getting off to slow start but then finding themselves. But what's funny is the Caps, as much as they outplayed the Penguins in the second period, lost the second period to nothing. Uh, Ilya Samsonov was the Caps starting goaltender for the first time in three games, stopped 23 of the 26 shots on goal that he faced. Per natural stat trick, stopped just five of the eight high danger shots on goal that he faced. And some of these situations were tough. The Penguins' first two goals were even strength breakaway goals by Brian Rust. And his second goal, which came just 26 seconds into the second period, really was a thing of beauty. I mean, if you remove your Caps fandom, if you remove your hatred for the Penguins, and I know those aren't easy things to do, but that goal by Rust, that was tremendous on Saturday night. Beating the Caps defenseman, Dmitry Orlov, to a puck headed toward the Caps defensive zone, and then going forehand, backhand, forehand to beat Samsonov in the low slot. Uh, that was not a good moment for Ole Orly, uh, with Russ doing as he did, doing Dimitri dirty uh, in that sequence. And then the Penguins' third goal was a Jeff Carter even strength goal, 10-43 into the second period, as the Penguins defenseman Chris Letang from the left wall next to the left circle just like sent the puck toward the net. The puck went off a skate, it looked like, and into the net. So, I mean, that's one of those fluky things. I'm not sure as a goaltender how much you're really supposed to do. The sequence, by the way, came off a face-off loss for the Caps' best face-off man, Nick Dowd, who only went 5-4 and four on face-offs on Saturday night. Rest of the Caps, 18-26 and 26 on face-offs in the game. There's a debate in hockey about how much face-offs truly matter 
But the Caps are like perpetually not very good on faceoffs. And this season is no exception. Caps, as of games through Saturday, 22nd out of 31 NHL teams in faceoff winning percentage at 48.9. Also on Saturday night, this was strange. The first penalty of the game didn't come until 6.07 into the third period. Uh, Caps 0 for 1 on the power play, 2 for 2 on the penalty kill. And Caps head coach Peter Laviolette was at it again, shuffling his lines. Laviolette has been a big-time line shuffler so far this year. But the new-look third line, Michael Roffel, Lars Eller, TJ Oshie, Oshie coming down from the second line, switching with Connor Sheary, look good. Uh, the Roffel, Eller, Oshie line, per natural stat trick, a 5-on-5 shot attempt percentage of 78.95, 15 shot attempts for, 4 shot attempts against, over 13 minutes, 34 seconds of ice time together in 5 on five plays. So hope the Caps keep doing well. I do hope they win the East Division. Like, I don't think it's a bad thing that that happens, but that's not the most important thing right now. Play well and get healthy. Ovechkin and Carlson, lower body injuries, whatever they may be. Big game for guess who on Monday night? Yes, the Wizards. The damn Washington Wizards. Thank you, Stephen A. Smith. Wizards host the Indiana Pacers Monday night at 7. What is the first of two games for the Wizards against the Pacers this week? Wiz host the Pacers on Monday night are at the Pacers this Saturday night at 7. Some favorable results for the Wizards on Sunday. The Boston Celtics lost at home to the Portland Trailblazers 129-119. The Charlotte Hornets lost at home to the Miami Heat 121-111. So the Wizards are 10th in the Eastern Conference at 29-35. and Game and a half behind the Pacers for ninth. Two games behind the Hornets for 8th. Four and a half games behind the Celtics for seventh. When it comes to this play-in tournament, which is going to be taking place after the regular season, before the first round of the NBA playoffs, you're talking seeds seven through ten in each conference. The advantage of getting seeds seven and eight is the teams with the ninth highest and tenth highest winning percentages in each conference each has to win two consecutive games to earn a playoff spot. The seven and eight seeds in each conference each will have two opportunities to win just one game to earn a playoff spot. So that's the distinction between seven and eight versus nine and 10 going into this play-in tournament. Wizards do have a shot at any of those four seeds, seven, eight, nine, ten, especially with how the Wizards have been playing. Now the Wiz did go just one and one over the weekend, uh, started things off with a 122-93 blowout win at the Cleveland Cavaliers on Friday night. Wizards in that game led by six points at the half, then dominated the second half, which they won 64-41. Wiz led by as many as 33 points in the fourth quarter. Scott Brooks was able to rest a bunch of his starters, play a lot of his bench. Then came the game on Saturday night, another one of these wild Wizards games, a 125-124 loss at the Dallas Mavericks. The Wizards overcame an 18-point second quarter deficit at 52-34 with a 63-37 run that gave the Wizards an eight-point lead at 97-89 entering the fourth quarter. But the Wizards lost that fourth quarter 36-27, including allowing Dorian Finney-Smith to connect on a 22-foot right corner three with 9.3 seconds left for a 125-124 Mavericks lead. That was the thing. The Wizards got worked by the Mavs in terms of three-point shooting on Saturday night. Dallas went 17 of 38 on threes. The Wizards went just 6 of 19 on threes. The Wizards have not been a good three-point shooting team this season. The other thing about Saturday night, too, was that the Wizards got Doncic'd as in Luka Doncic, who actually only went one of six on threes and struggled from the free throw line as well, just six of 11. But Luka finished with a monster triple-double. 31 points, 20 assists 
versus one turnover and 12 rebounds. I mean, how about that? 20 assists versus one turnover. Doncic in that fourth quarter that the Mavericks won 36-27, scored or assisted on 25 of the Mavericks' 36 points. Wizards, in a lot of ways, played a pretty good game on Saturday night. I mean, the three-point discrepancy was the biggest thing, but the Wizards did go 41-72 on twos, outscored the Mavericks in the paint 60-42. Wizards had 14 offensive rebounds to the Mavericks' seven, and the Wizards had a decided advantage at the free throw line, 24-31 of versus Dallas going 14-22. of So you outscored the Mavericks by 10 at the line, out-attempted the Mavericks by nine at the line, but the Wizards ended up losing by one. A few things I want to highlight in terms of individuals from the Wizards weekend. So Russell Westbrook is on a freaking tear right now. The season that Russell Westbrook is having for the Wizards really has evolved into something special. It did not start off well. And for a good chunk of the season, right, there was, I think, major regret or at least major worry that you would be regretting the trade. John Wall and a protected first round pick to the Houston Rockets for Russell Westbrook. But Westbrook has really picked it up. He's one of the biggest reasons for the Wizards being in the midst of this surge, even with the loss at the Dallas Mavericks on Saturday night. Wizards are 12-3 and over the team's last 15 games. And take a listen to what Westbrook did over the weekend. So the Friday night blowout win at the Cavaliers. Westbrook played for just 31 minutes, 13 seconds, but still extended his single season and career franchise records with yet another triple-double. 15 points, 12 rebounds, 11 assists versus three turnovers. He went 0-1 on threes, but 5 of 11 on twos. And he wrapped up one of the great months you'll ever see a player have. The month of April, right? That was the Wizards' final game in April. Westbrook became just the second player in NBA history with at least 200 assists and 200 rebounds in a calendar month. He joined Oscar Robertson, who did this in November 1961, and then again in February 1962. And speaking of the Big O, Westbrook got one step closer to the Big O's NBA record for career regular season triple-doubles with another triple-double in the Saturday night loss at the Mavericks. Westbrook authored his 32nd triple-double of the season, the 178th career regular season triple-double for Westbrook. So he's three shy of Oscar Robertson's record of 181. That record's going down this season. You know, for a while, it was kind of like, well, it could go down. Now it's like, no, it is going to go down. And Westbrook finished the game with 42 points, 10 rebounds, and nine assists versus two turnovers to go with two steals in 40 minutes, 12 seconds as a starter. And he was very good as a shooter. Three of six on threes, 14 of 24 on twos. We have had a good chunk of these triple-doubles, right, be those classic Westbrook triple-doubles of, yeah, he gets double-digit points, rebounds, and assists, but he's not efficient as a shooter. He commits way too many turnovers. That was not the case on Saturday night. Westbrook shot well, had just two turnovers the entire game. He's been awesome. If the Wizards were doing better as a team, Westbrook would be in the MVP conversation, to be honest with you. I mean, he's not going to be in that conversation because the Wizards are still a sub-500 team, but he has really made a charge as the season has gone on. It's been great to see. Interesting weekend for Bradley Beal. Uh, So Beal, like Westbrook, didn't play a ton in the blowout win at Cleveland on Friday night. Just 26 minutes, 12 seconds of playing time. Actually struggled shooting, went just one of four on threes, just seven of 20 on twos, finished with 19 points, and then came the loss at the Mavericks on Saturday night for Beal, another game in which he struggles on threes, one of five, it's been a really bad year for Beal when it comes to shooting threes, and he missed a 24-foot three-point attempt from near the top of the arc, off, by the way, having lost the ball, but then got the ball back 
thanks to Raul Neto. More on Neto in a moment. But that was almost a complete disaster for Beal. A super costly turnover in the closing seconds of the game. Does not end up turning the ball over, but does end up missing the three. Uh, Beal did go 8 of 15 on twos, 10 of 11 on free throws, 29 points, 4 rebounds, 3 assists versus 3 turnovers and a couple of steals. I mentioned Neto. So Raul Neto has been starting. Remember, Wizards are without Denny Avdia, right ankle fracture that was suffered in the 118-114 win over the Golden State Warriors at Capital One Arena on April 21st. So Avdia is done for the season. Wizards have long since lost Thomas Bryant, partial tear of his left ACL suffered on January 9th. So Neto has been starting. He started each of the last eight games for the Wizards, and he's playing well. You know, Neto was kind of hit and miss for much of the season. He's been much more hit than miss lately. The win at the Cavaliers on Friday night, Neto, in just 18 minutes, 20 seconds as a starter, 17 points on 6-7 shooting, including 2-2 two two on threes, 5 rebounds, 3 assists, versus 2 turnovers, and 2 steals. And then Neto in the loss at the Mavericks on Saturday night, 8 points on 3-5 shooting, 9 rebounds, and 4 assists versus no turnovers in 29 minutes. 27 seconds of playing time. Another good weekend for Daniel Gafford, too, off the bench. Uh, the win at the Cavs on Friday night, 13 points, 6 of 7, shooting 7 boards, and a plus-minus rating of plus 28 in 21 minutes, 49 seconds off the bench. And then Gafford in the loss at the Mavs on Saturday night, 9 points, 4 of 5, shooting 7 rebounds, 25 minutes, 9 seconds off the bench. In terms of per-minute production, I don't know that anyone's been better than Daniel Gafford for the Wizards over these last few weeks. Uh, Wizards now 18-12 and 12 against Western Conference teams as compared to being 11-23 and 23 versus Eastern Conference teams. You got some big games coming up here against, again, the Indiana Pacers. They are in the East, so, you know, if you're worried about, well, they're facing a bunch of uh, Eastern Conference teams, yeah, that's the truth. Uh, all four games, in fact, for the Wizards this week are against Eastern Conference teams. Those two games against the Pacers, Wizards also are at the Milwaukee Bucks, Wednesday night at 8 at the Toronto Raptors, Thursday night at 7.30. Bunch of road games left for the Wizards as the NBA regular season is winding down. Wizards have just eight games left in the regular season. Five of the eight are on the road. All right. Well, for the first time in the 2021 Major League Baseball season, we can say something. That something is the Nationals have authored a three-game sweep. Davey Martinez, if you would, please. I'm proud of the boys. And you should be proud of the boys. The Nationals with a three-game sweep of the Miami Marlins in Nationals Park over the weekend. A 2-1-10 inning win over the Marlins on Friday night. A game in which the two former Chicago Cubs led the way. John Lester, five scoreless innings in his regular season Nats debut. Kyle Schwarber, a walk-off homer for a second time in three Friday nights. The game was scoreless through nine innings, included the Nats hitting into a bunch of double plays, going 0 for 6 with runners in scoring position. But oh, Swarby with the bomb to end the game on Friday night. You then had a 7-2 win over the Marlins on Saturday afternoon. Patrick Corbin, great for a second time in six starts this season. The Nats scoring all seven of their runs over the first four innings off Marlins starter Paul Campbell and a Marlins reliever named Ross Detweiler. Yes, the former Nats pitcher who the Nats took with the number six pick all the way back in the 2007 MLB draft. And then came the 3-1 victory over the Marlins on Sunday afternoon. The Nationals getting a gem from Max Scherzer, who bounced back from a bad start with a complete game in which he had nine strikeouts. And there's more two Maxes Sunday than just that. Also, Ryan Zimmerman with a three-run home run. So the Nationals now are 12-12, and 500. Nats have won four consecutive games. Nats are 11-7 and seven since the 1-5 and five start. And the Nats are tied with the New York Mets for first 
in the National League East. The Mets are 11 and 11, as there isn't a single team in the NL East with a winning record. In fact, four of the five teams in the NL East have negative run differentials, and the only team with a positive run differential in the division is the team in last place, the Marlins. They're at plus four. Every other team is at minus 12 or worse. So, of the many things that were positive for the Nationals in the three-game sweep of the Marlins, no positive was bigger than the starting pitching. The starting pitching has been so Jekyll and Hyde for the Nationals so far this year. It feels like it's either been great or awful, and the awful has really been awful. I mean, some really bad blow-up starts by Nat starters so far this year. What you got over the weekend against the Marlins from John Lester Friday night, Patrick Corbin on Saturday afternoon, and then Max Scherzer on Sunday afternoon, three consecutive good starts. Those three guys ended up combining to allow three runs in 21 innings over the three starts. And we'll work backwards here. So Max, awesome on Sunday afternoon, complete game gem, one run in nine innings on nine strikeouts, versus five hits, a homer and four singles, no walks, and a hit by pitch. He threw 76 of his 106 pitches for strikes. And then there was this. After the game, he skipped his post-game Zoom press conference. Why? To be with his wife, Erica, who was due to give birth that evening. So here you had Max. He was dominant on Sunday afternoon, and then hopefully he welcomed a child into the world on Sunday evening. But quite a Sunday for Max Scherzer, quite a Scherzday for Max Scherzer. Uh, he did lose his bid for a shutout by giving up a leadoff homer to Isan Diaz in the top of the ninth inning. But Max was really good, induced a number of ground balls in the game, ultimately recorded 11 outs via grounders. You know, you knew that Max was going to do well, especially facing a team in the Marlins that does not have a good lineup. But the Marlins lineup to me is like a 4A lineup. Marlins have some pitching, but the bats leave a lot to be desired. And so Max coming off that bad outing, 9-5 loss to the Toronto Blue Jays in Dunedin, Florida last Tuesday night. Seven runs, five earned in five innings. Remember, gave up two homers to Vladimir Guerrero Jr. One of the surest bets on the planet is Max Scherzer bouncing back from a bad start, especially against a lowly lineup like that of the Marlins. And that's exactly what happened on Sunday afternoon. And so here you have Max now over six starts this season. Dominant numbers, Cy Young-worthy numbers. 254 ERA, 0.85 whip. 47 strikeouts versus six walks. Corbin in the 7-2 win over the Marlins on Saturday afternoon. Very good to see him pitch well for, again, just the second time in six starts. So we're not out of the woods with Patrick Corbin yet, but at least, you know, you're not closing your eyes necessarily when he starts his next game. Two runs in seven innings on four strikeouts versus four hits, a homer, two doubles, and a single, and four walks, one of which was intentional. He threw 93 pitches, 62 of which were strikes. He was back to throwing strikes. That had been, to me, one of the bigger concerns. Corbin, in his previous game, the 4-0 loss at the New York Mets, now two Sunday afternoons ago, April 25th, bad for a third time in four starts, four runs, four innings, but threw just 48 of his 79 pitches for strikes in that game. Corbin went into that game on Saturday with an ERA of 10.47 on the season. I mean, 10.47, that's horrendous. But Corbin was good on Saturday, gave up the run in the top of the sixth on a one-out first pitch solo homer by Jesus Aguilar, allowed another run top of the seventh on a one-out five-pitch walk at John Birdie, a one-out double by Chad Wallach, and a one-out first-pitch RBI sack fly by Isan Diaz. I mean, it is true, Corbin had just one clean inning on Saturday afternoon, which was the top of the third, but given how he's pitched for so much of the season, two runs in seven innings, I mean, you take that and you run with that if you're a Nationals fan. And speaking of taking something and running with it, how about John Lester in his regular season 
Nats debut. I mean, the ramp up for Lester is the ramp up to end all ramp ups. I've talked about that. But Lester was good. Maybe the ramp up was needed. Maybe they should have done an even longer ramp up. He would have thrown a no hitter. But uh, two one ten inning win over the Marlins on Friday night. Lester five scoreless innings. Okay, now he was far from dominant. Had just one strikeout. Gave up five hits, two doubles, and three singles. Uh, issued two walks, although both of those were intentional. And had just one clean inning, which actually was the top of the fourth in which he struck out the former Nats catcher, Sandy Leon, for the second out. Interesting, right? Sandy Leon on the Marlins. Ross Detweiler uh, on the Marlins. But Lester threw 46 of his 70 pitches for strikes, induced nine total outs via grounders. So good to see this with John Lester, who, remember, is not only an older pitcher now, but is coming off back-to-back bad seasons. John Lester, 2019 and 2020 regular seasons for the Chicago Cubs, 464 ERA over 43 starts in those two seasons. And Lester's average four-seam fastball velocity plummeted in 2020, career-worst 89.8 miles per hour per Sports Info Solutions. So you very much will take five scoreless innings. Thank you uh, from John Lester on Friday night. Nats bullpen had another good series. Wasn't even needed in the Max Scherzer gem on Sunday afternoon, but Nats relievers in the series combined to give up one run unearned in eight innings. Couple of performances I want to highlight. So in the 2-1-10 inning win on Friday night, how about the job by Sam Clay? Absolute fireman, top of the six. Enters the game with two outs, runners at the corners, and the game scoreless induces a ground out for the third out. Nats then got a perfect top of the seventh from Tanner Rainey, perfect top of the eighth from Daniel Hudson. Brad Hand gave you a scoreless top of the ninth, then allowed a run unearned in the top of the tenth, which, remember, began with a Marlins runner on second base on a two-out bloop single by Garrett Cooper. And then in the 7-2 win on Saturday afternoon, two Nats relievers combined for two scoreless innings. Kyle Finnegan, scoreless top of the eighth, but Austin Voth, a scoreless top of the ninth with three strikeouts. Voth really seems to be coming into his own as a Nationals reliever. His velocity on Saturday afternoon topped out at 97.1 miles per hour per the data on MLB.com. This was Voth's first outing since tossing three scoreless innings with four strikeouts in that 4 nothing loss at the Mets the previous Sunday afternoon, April 25th. Voth has done a really nice job as a reliever, and it's so funny. The Nationals for years, right, had the same three guys battling for the fifth spot in the rotation. Joe Ross, Eric Fetty, Austin Voth. All three guys so far this season are doing a good job and have been pleasant surprises for the Nationals. Ross and Fetty as starters and Voth as a reliever. He, I mean, he's one of these guys, Voth is, who may well be a failed starter who, because he's able to go all out as a reliever, thrives as a reliever. And it's too early to say that Voth is thriving, but he's done a really nice job so far. He's throwing heat and he's putting forth some dominant outings. Again, three scoreless innings, four strikeouts in that shutout loss at the Mets. Scoreless top of the ninth, three strikeouts in the win over the Marlins on Saturday afternoon. When it comes to the Nationals offense, look, it's still far from great. There is still reason to be concerned, but the Nats are finally hitting some homers. You know, Davey's been tinkering with the lineup basically every game. I mentioned Peter Laviolette, Caps head coach, constantly shuffling his lines. Davey's doing the same thing with the lineup, and that's not necessarily a bad thing, right? You want to find things that work, and you want to be flexible, and you want to adjust to different matchups. I'm not sure that Davey has to tinker with the lineup quite as often as Davey is, but whatever. Offense has been better. Two big homers over the weekend for the Nationals. Kyle Schwarber's on Friday night, Ryan Zimmerman's on Sunday afternoon. So Schwarber is still trying to get going truly as a batter, but the guy does have two huge walk-off homers on two Friday nights this season. The 2-1 tenanting win over the Marlins on Friday night. Schwarber, a single and a walk-off homer. And it's interesting because he actually had a really bad at-bat in the bottom of the first with the bases loaded two outs. He ended up popping up 
for the third out. But Schwarber then had a one-out single in the bottom of the seventh and then delivered the highlights of the night, a walk-off leadoff two-run homer on a bomb to the second deck in right center field. And again, second time in three Friday nights that old Schwarby does this. The one nothing walk-off win over the Arizona Diamondbacks in Nationals Park on April 26th. Schwarber in that game, a wicked one-out walk-off homer to the second deck in right field off uh, the lefty Diamondbacks reliever Alex Young in the bottom of the ninth. So if nothing else, Kyle Schwarber is adding to your win probability this season with two big walk-off homers. And then there is Ryan Zimmerman. He only ends up starting one game in the three-game sweep of the Marlins. The 3-1 win on Sunday afternoon was the starting first baseman, was the number four batter, and he goes one for four with a three-run homer. Zimmerman, a two-out, three-run homer on an 0-2 pitch off lefty Marlins starter Trevor Rogers, who came into the game with a 129 ERA and 315 ERA plus on the season. Trevor Rogers had been doing really well. Zimmerman smashed him with that three-run bomb to dead center, by the way, in the bottom of the third. That Zimmerman homer per stat cast, an exit velocity of 107.4 miles per hour when it projected 430 feet. And how about the season that Ryan Zimmerman is having in super limited opportunity? Just 49 plate appearances for Ryan Zimmerman so far this season. And yet he is second on the Nats with four home runs. And Zimmerman has the following slash line. Batting average of 319, on-base percentage of 347, slugging percentage of 596. As good as Trey Turner has been, as well as Juan Soto was doing prior to his injury, plate appearance per plate appearance, there hasn't been a better Nationals batter so far this season than Ryan Zimmerman. Now, we talk about Zim and talk about him, hey, playing more as Josh Bell, perhaps, is coming out of his funk. And, you know, as I've discussed with Josh Bell, it's not so much that his process has been that bad because he's hit balls hard this season. Really, his launch angle has been the issue. He's also struck out way too often. But perhaps Bell is starting to find himself this year. Josh Bell had a huge hit in the 7-2 win over the Marlins on Saturday afternoon. He went two for four with a double, a single, and four RBI. Had a one-out first pitch ribby single in the Nats one-run first. And then came the big blow, a two-out three-run double on an 0-2 pitch in the Nats' five-run fourth. How about that? Two of the bigger hits for the Nationals on the weekend coming on 0-2 pitches. The Zimmerman three-run shot on Sunday. The Bell three-run double on Saturday. Josh Harrison had another good series. He was the Nats' number two batter in all three games, starting second baseman in games one and two. was actually the starting left fielder in game three. Harrison in the series, six for 10 with a double, five singles, a walk, and a hit by pitch. Uh, Harrison slashing on the season, 361 in terms of the batting average, 451 in terms of the on-base percentage. That's outstanding. And a 508 slugging percentage for Josh Harrison. Yadiel Hernandez had another good series for the Nationals. He was a starting right fielder in all three games, four for nine with four singles, two walks, and two at two on stolen bases. Hernandez, 367 batting average, 444 on base, 500 slugging percentage on the season. Jan Gomes had a good series. Uh, He started games two and three at catcher. He, in the 7-2 win over the Marlins on Saturday afternoon, two for four with a homer, a single, and a couple of RBI. Two-run homer uh, for Gomes in that game in the Nationals' five-run fourth inning. And then Gomes in the 3-1 win on Sunday, two for four with a double uh, and a single. And I mentioned Trey Turner really didn't hit for power over the weekend, uh, but Trey, three for 12 with three singles into walk, two for two on stolen bases. How about one of those singles, though, by Trey Turner? Uh, came in the win on Sunday afternoon, the 3-1 victory. So Trey, in that game, one for three with a single and a walk, had a two-out five-pitch walk in the Nats' three-run third, and a two-out single on an 0-2 pitch in the bottom of the seventh, and what certainly seemed to be 
an instance of uh, favorable scoring by the official score. Turner hit the ball to the reliever, Zach Pop, and was safe at first thanks to like an absurdly weird and bad throw by Pop. But yet Trey Turner was given credit for a single in that moment. I didn't understand that at all. But whatever, Trey Turner will take it. 309 batting average, 356 on base percentage, 543 slugging for Trey Turner so far this year. And then there is Victor Robles, who amazingly was back as the Nationals' number one batter in Davies' lineup on Sunday. Robles was the starting center fielder for the Nats in games one and three in the series, came off the bench in game two. And Robles was the leadoff man on Sunday for the first time since serving as the Nationals' number one batter for each of the team's first eight games of the season. Robles went one for three with a double and a walk. Robles in the series three for seven with a double, two singles and a walk. He's got a 349 on base percentage as Robles on the year. I wouldn't mind seeing more of him in the number one spot. But the problem for Robles is, first of all, he's not hitting well in terms of average, 229. He's not hitting for any power. He's slugging just 286. And he continues to get thrown out on the base paths. Victor Robles in the series 0 for 2 on stolen bases. He is now 1 for 4 on stolen bases on the season. Robles in the game on Sunday, leadoff double, bottom of the first. You love that? That's exactly what a leadoff man is supposed to do. And there's an instance of Robles hitting for some power with the two base hit. But Victor Robles later in the game, a one-out four-pitch walk in the Nats three-run third. And he, in that inning, gets caught trying to steal third base via the Marlins starter, Trevor Rogers, throwing to third baseman John Birdie for the second out on an attempted double steal. Robles went too early on the double steal, ended up being caught stealing. It's been painful with Robles, him getting thrown out trying to steal bases. You know, Friday night, the 2-1 inning victory, Robles had a one-out single in the bottom of the fifth as a number eight batter, but then got caught trying to steal second base on a delayed steal for the second out. You know, Robles, double steal, delayed steal, having issues so far this year to say nothing of the instances in which Victor Robles has been thrown out trying to extend hits, you know, turn a single into a double, a double into a triple, that kind of a thing. So it's frustrating with Victor Robles because he's got talent. He's got speed. But, you know, here's the thing about baseball. Just because you have speed, that doesn't mean that you're a great base runner. And the numbers scream to you, Victor Robles is not a great base runner. Not yet. Nats are off on Monday, then have a big week here. Three-game series against the Atlanta Braves at Nationals Park Tuesday through Thursday. Juan Soto could be back for that series. So we'll be keeping an eye on that. Braves, by the way, are struggling. They've dropped four straight, got swept by the Toronto Blue Jays in Dunedin, Florida over the weekend. And then after the series against the Braves for the Nats comes a three-game series at the New York Yankees Friday through Sunday. Yankees have gotten to 500 at 14 and 14 off a three-game sweep of the Detroit Tigers over the weekend. So a good weekend for the Nationals and a good weekend for the Orioles who win two of three at the Oakland A's. A 3-2 win on Friday night, an 8-4 win on Saturday, a 7-5 loss on Sunday. O's are 13 and 15. The Orioles are hanging in there, okay? The tanking, low payroll having Orioles are just two games below 528 games into the season. It's not going to continue. I do expect the fade to happen at some point, but the fade ain't happening yet. So I give the Orioles credit for that. Uh, also the Orioles bizarrely now nine and five on the road versus just four and 10 at home. It's like a Wizards like thing with the Wizards so much better bizarrely against the Western Conference and the Eastern Conference. Orioles, interestingly, better on the road so far as compared to at home. So a few things from this series. Uh, how about the Orioles starting pitching, especially in games one and two? John Means was outstanding 
in that 3-2 win at the A's on Friday night. Two runs in seven innings, nine strikeouts versus three hits, two solo homers in a single and a walk on 93 pitches, 63 of which were strikes. Means has been lights out so far this year. Six starts. He's got an ERA of 170. He's got a whip a 0.84. And if you go back to last season, in which Means dealt with left arm fatigue and the death of his father, so his overall numbers for the year didn't end up being that good. ERA of 453 over 10 starts, but he was quite good over his last four starts, during which he had an ERA of 152. So Means, last four starts last season, first six starts this season, really has been tremendous. He has been the John Means who we saw in 2019, when he had an ERA of 360, had a war per baseball reference of 4.8, and was the Orioles' lone representative on that 2019 American League All-Star team. Then there was Matt Harvey in the 8-4 win on Saturday. How about the dark night? Matt Harvey, two runs in five and two-thirds innings, just one strikeout uh, versus four hits and three walks on 90 pitches, 54 strikes versus 36 balls. Look, he's not dominant, okay? And he puts guys on, but Matt Harvey now has an ERA of 4.06 over six starts. He has registered a win in each of his last three starts off having not registered a win since July 2019. And the reason I say that word that way, win, is because I think pitcher wins are very overrated. But I give Matt Harvey credit. He's doing a nice job here. I mean, the job of the Orioles with Harvey, right, has been to fix him and flip him. He is a chip to be flipped. And Harvey is living up to his end of the bargain here. A guy who had been a mess for years, a guy who's dealt with all kinds of injury, Tommy John surgery, October 2013, although he did come back from that just fine. But the thoracic outlet syndrome surgery that he underwent in July 2016, that was the procedure that really wrecked Harvey's career. He's bounced around the majors over the last few seasons, New York Mets, Cincinnati Reds, Los Angeles Angels, Kansas City Royals. Guy had an ERA of 582 over the last five years, 2016 through 2020. So far, so good. Another nice performance, I thought, in that win on Saturday. The lone boo-boo in terms of Oriole starters over the weekend was Bruce Zimmerman, who had another bad outing in the 7-5 loss on Sunday. Four runs, three earned in four and two-thirds innings. Gave up seven hits, a homer, a double, five singles, two walks, two hit-by-pitches, four strikeouts through just 49 of his 87 pitches for strikes. He's got an ERA, Zimmerman does, of 540 over six starts on the year. It's a shame because Bruce Zimmerman, he's a lefty, he's a rookie, he's a guy who really stood out in spring training. He wasn't even really supposed to be that much of a factor in terms of making the season opening rotation, ends up making the season opening rotation, but things have not gone well so far. Austin Hayes had a big series for the Orioles in their series victory at the A's. Hayes was the Orioles starting left fielder and number two batter in all three games. He goes four for 13 with two homers, two singles, a walk, and four RBI in the series. All four of Hayes' homers this season have come against the A's. Hayes versus the A's. Hayes slays the A's. There you go. That's a rhyming Orioles key for you uh, on a Monday. Austin Hayes now on the season is slugging 500 over 61 plate appearances. You know, he's had an odd season because he dealt with injury. He was on the 10-day injured list April 5th to April 20th with a right hamstring strain. But he's coming on here, and man, did he have a nice weekend. Hayes in the 3-2 win on Friday night. Two-out solo homer in the top of the third, despite having been down in the count at one point. 0-2 hit the second of back-to-back home runs with Cedric Mullins, who's been so good so far this year. Hayes in the 8-4 win on Saturday had a single that scored three runs and gave him two RBI on a 1-2 pitch in the Orioles' six-run third. And then Hayes in the 7-5 loss on Sunday, a two-out solo homer on a bomb to left center 
in the top of the third, despite having been down in the count at 1.02. Also had a two-out single in the Orioles' two-run fifth and a one-out four-pitch walk in the top of the ninth inning. But some real good two-strike hitting from Austin Hayes over the weekend. The homer on Friday night comes in a count in which he's down at 1.02. The single that plates three runs and a win on Saturday comes on a 1-2 pitch. And then the bomb in the top of the third on Sunday, the two-out solo homer, that comes despite Hayes having been down in that count at 1.02. Austin Hayes, the third-round pick in 2016 for the Orioles. He's in his age 25 season, doing a nice job here, especially against the A's. If only the Orioles could only play the A's, Austin Hayes would be the American League MVP. And then there's Trey Mancini, who to me is having an interesting season. So obviously, you know, it's a special season with him having missed all of last season due to colon cancer. I do view Trey Mancini as a chip to be flipped. I know that's not necessarily a popular opinion, but if you look at where he's at contractually and from an age standpoint, it makes sense for the Orioles if they want to maximize his value to trade him. If not this season, then certainly this offseason, especially if he has a very good 2021. Remember, Trey Mancini had an excellent 2019. He's not off to a great start overall on the season. He's only batting 243. His on-base percentage is just 299. He's only slugging 430. But he does lead the Orioles with 21 runs batted in. You know, it's a classic case of how RBI aren't necessarily reflective of someone having a great season. Actually, the Nationals have this right now with Starling Castro. Castro leads the Nats in RBI. He himself, though, is not having a very good season when you look at his slash line. But Trey Mancini, three... We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. He more runs batted in in the 7-5 loss at the A's on Sunday. He had two singles and three RBI. A two-out, two-run single in the top of the fifth. A two-out RBI single for a 5-4 Orioles lead in the top of the seventh. Yeah, that was the thing on Sunday. Orioles went up 5-4 on the Mancini two-out ribby single in the top of the seventh. But Paul Fry and Travis Lakin Sr. combined to allow three runs and two innings. Orioles' bullpen has been good on the season. Wasn't particularly good. At least those two weren't particularly good on Sunday. O's now continue their trip out west against the top two teams in the American League West with a three-game series at the Seattle Mariners. Game one, Monday night at 10-10. All right, guys, look, no one's perfect. Even the best baseball players strike out with the bases loaded. The best golfers sometimes three-putt with the tournament on the line. So if you feel like you come up short in the bedroom sometimes, it's perfectly okay. But if it's bothering you, there are options. Go to GetRoman.com slash AlGaldi now. With Roman, you can get a free online evaluation and ongoing care. 
for ED, all from the comfort and privacy of your home. A U.S. licensed healthcare professional will work with you to find the best treatment plan. If medication is appropriate, it ships to you free with two-day shipping. The whole process is straightforward and discreet. Getting started is simple. Just go to GetRoman.com slash AlGaldi and complete an online visit. Take care of your ED without leaving home. Complete an online visit today to connect with a doctor and take care of it. Go to GetRoman.com slash AlGaldi now to get $15 off your first month. Look, there's a straightforward way to take care of your ED. GetRoman.com slash AlGaldi. Get started now to save $15 on your first month of treatment. All right, that will do it for you and me for now. Keep the feedback coming. Let me know what you think about the Washington football team's 2021 draft. Let me know what you think about what we heard from the mighty Thor Nystrom earlier on this podcast. You can tweet me at AlGaldi. You can email me to the AlGaldi podcast at yahoo.com. Also, make sure you check out, if you haven't already, the two special bonus episodes of this podcast from the weekend, all about the Washington football team's 2021 draft, episode 52 on what Washington did in rounds two and three, episode 53 on what Washington did in rounds four through seven. Much more on the Washington football team coming out of the draft on Tuesday's podcast, on which we'll also discuss what happens with the Capitals at the New York Rangers and the Wizards home to the Indiana Pacers on Monday night. Have a great rest of your Monday. I'll talk to you on Tuesday. I ain't never been to jail. What's on a cookie?